It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation. Find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip, and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, I speak with Renee Wooten, who is from Melbourne. The week after her birthday in November 2021, Renee was diagnosed with anaplastic large T-cell lymphoma after noticing a lump on the back of her throat that had just appeared the month before. Her life was changed forever in a single doctor's visit. Renee and I speak about what it was like to be diagnosed during the COVID pandemic in Melbourne and how the hospital restrictions impacted her support network during some of the toughest times of treatment. Now, in remission, Renee tells me how I'm not lucky because this still happened to me, but I am fortunate and I wake up every day and tell myself it is going to be a good day to be alive, so go on and live life. Renee's outlook and episode has you walking away feeling brighter and looking at life a little differently. Hi, Renee. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Our pleasure, our absolute pleasure. What we usually do with every guest is we start off by um, having them introduce themselves as to who they are, where they are living in Australia, who is in their family and when and what have they been diagnosed with. Yeah, so my name is Renee Wooten and I am based in Melbourne, Victoria. Um, I currently live with my partner and we're the only two that live here in Melbourne. Um, my family live in Albury-Wodonga, about three and a half hours away from here. So my parents and my brother, my two brothers, and then I've got a brother that lives in Canada. And then um, my partner's family live in Western Australia in Perth. So here in Melbourne, it's just us. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed with a rare type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma on the 4th of November, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called anaplastic large cell T lymphoma. That is rare. I have not heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, it's really rare. It's um, The stats are that it affects 4% of non-Hodgkin lymphoma diagnosis and mm-hmm. 1% of them are female. Wow. So, um, very rare. <laughs> and yeah. um, I always joke like I was the chosen one because even the the numbers for it are older people, um, typically in your 60s, which mm. I am not in my 60s. Yeah. Can I ask how old you are? Yeah. So I had just turned 29 when I found out. It was exactly a week after my 29th birthday. Wow. And so what was happening for life? Obviously, clearly it was coming up to your birthday, but what was going on in life around the time of diagnosis? Yeah, life was busy and life was full and I was training really hard. I was probably the healthiest that I've ever been. Wow. Um, I ate really, really clean. I was exercising daily. I was doing a lot of HIIT training. Like I was fit and active Mm-hmm. And I was probably training six days a week. Um, I was working full time. I had slowly been removing all the toxic products out of our house. Um, and so. And that it, was just by choice? Yeah, it was just by was choice. Like- um, I am very passionate about holistic health and mindset and all of that. So being in Melbourne, I'd spent two years in lockdown and which was already tough. And I'd spent a lot of time in that during that time, you know, trying to live more healthy and um, what could I do to prevent disease essentially. Wow. And um, yeah, randomly enough, it was the day that we got out of lockdown and our fifth lockdown. (laughs) And um, which year was this? This was 2021? Yep, 2021. And um, I was at the beach and I remember the day so clearly we got out of lockdown out of our 5K radius and we could go 20. And for me, the beach is just like, that's my happy place. That's where my soul just feels so aligned and lit up. And all day I could feel something in the back of my throat. And um, I was like, I knew I ate oats for breakfast and I'd had an acai bowl at lunchtime. And I was like, oh, there's something back there. And that night before I went to bed, I'd said to my partner, Sam, can you just have a look? I think I've got food stuck in the back of my throat. And he was like, okay, that's weird. And he had a look and he was just like, babe, that's, you've got something back there. That's not normal. Wow. And So um, he could see a lump? Is that what he yeah, could see? Yeah, we could see a lump. And I had a look in the mirror and I was like, oh, my gosh, what is that? That's not normal. And to be honest, I thought that it was tonsillitis. Because that's what you think. You've got a lump in the back of your throat. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So the next day I woke up and um, I called my mom and my stepdad and I was like, hey, like there's something in the back of my throat. It's really weird. I think I'm going to try and get into a doctor today Um, just because if it gets bigger, it's going to block my airway. Wow. And they were like, okay, try and get into a doctor. Send us through a photo because you could see it so visually that 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 prominent wow yeah and what can I ask was it just that first like you said you noticed it on the beach had you noticed it any other time did no it- no okay. no so um ironically enough it was a week after I got my COVID vaccine and um yeah to be honest that vaccine probably saved my life 
Yeah. Why do you say that? What What makes you say that? Um, I didn't want the vaccine. I was very hesitant about getting it. I really, as I said, I was very into holistic health and I was like, mm, I just don't know. Like it wasn't sitting right with me and I was just really on the fence about it. And then I got it and it was just that it was within a week, like one week. And one of the side effects was inflamed lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. And just it popped out in a week and I was like, wow, if I had put off getting that vaccine even longer, maybe it might not have popped out. And by that stage, it could have been anywhere. Uh, Very, very true. Very true. Yeah. And um, so that's what makes me think that it possibly saved my life um, or saved me from a much worse situation. Of you delaying it, of you delaying going to the doctor. Yeah. And um and if it didn't pop out and I couldn't visually see it, I might not have gone to the doctor either. Mm-hmm. So I called around to like 10 different doctors that Saturday morning and I finally got in to see someone and um, he was lovely and he basically just said to me, look, I don't know what this is because you don't have any side effect. Like you've got no other symptoms. You just have this random lump that's appeared And so he wrote me a referral and I went and saw a throat specialist on the Monday. Um, Why didn't you get in that quickly? Well, (laughs) they did tell me that the next availability was February 2022. And I just said, look, that's not going to work for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a lump that's growing in my throat and if it continues to grow, it's going to block my airway. Um, And the lady on the phone said, okay, give me a second let me see what I can do. And she came back and she goes, okay, I can get you in at one o'clock today. Wow. Yeah. Well, how powerful was your voice in that moment for yeah. you to speak up and just not go, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was like, done. Okay. I'll see you at one o'clock. Thanks so much. Um, and I just knew it wasn't right. Like intuitively, I knew that something wasn't right because I'd never seen anything like that before, but never in a million years did I ever expect that it was going to be cancer and when I went to the specialist the specialist said it's a cyst that has ruptured take these antibiotics for a week so had you had the scan at that before he'd given you that advice or no no so um so the lump appeared on the Friday on the Monday I was at the specialist the following weekend the lump had got worse and the antibiotics that I was on were making me feel very, very nauseous. And um, so I went back to the regular doctor because the specialist cost me a fortune. Yeah, <laughs> they do, they do. And were you trying to work at this time yep. as well? Yep. So I was trying to work in this time. And then on that Thursday was my birthday. Um, that weekend I went to, back to the doctor. She said, I think it's a thing called Quincy. It's very, very rare though these days. And so I'm unsure, but I'm going to change your antibiotics. But if it doesn't change by Monday, I'm writing you a referral to go to the INE hospital in Melbourne. So Monday came and um, I'd said to my partner on the Sunday night, look, this is getting worse. We need to do something. Did you have any other symptoms? Like, you know, when they talk about lymphoma, they talk about either co- the, the cold sweats or the night sweats, nothing. temperatures, nothing. nothing. Yeah, wow. And um, that's why everyone kind of kept not blowing it off but really struggled to find out what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to the hospital on the Saturday mo- – on the Monday morning, sorry, because of COVID, they said – I'm sorry, your partner can't come in with you. You have to come in by yourself. And I was like, okay. So he left for work and I went in and the doctor there was lovely. He was really, really lovely. And he said, look, I I don't know what this is, but I'm going to get another doctor to come in and have a look. But just to be safe, I'm going to be do a biopsy. And I don't think it's anything to worry about because you don't have any symptoms, but we want to just rule everything out. And I was like, okay, no worries. And the other doctor came in and was like, whoa, I've never seen anything like this before. Can I take some photos? <laughs> and I, was like, like, mm, I was like, rather- <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, no worries. <laughs> like I've been taking photos. Of course you can. Yeah. Um, and so that was that. And then they said, okay, 
the next availability to get your results is in 11 days. And I was like, okay, well, we'll just book it in. And um, if anything comes up earlier, hopefully I can get my results earlier. And again, the doctor seemed really confident that it wasn't going to be anything too bad. So I was like, waiting 11 days, it's fine. Especially with that level of reassurance of them continuously saying, you you don't meet any other symptoms. And we hope that it's just that cyst that they were thinking it may have been. Yeah, exactly. So I left there on the Monday um, and then Tuesday was Melbourne Cup here in Melbourne. And then on the Wednesday, I went back to work and I got a call at about oh, 11 a.m. or something like that. And I missed the call, but there was a voice message. So I I listened to that and it said, hi, Renee, we know it's really last minute, but we've had a opening come up today at 1.30. Can you please come into the city? And I was like, okay, like, no worries. That's great. They've got my results back sooner. Like, so naive of me. Like, And were you in pain at this time? Were you eating? Were you drinking? Um, I was eating um, softer foods um, and I wasn't in too much pain. Um, it was starting to grow, so it was getting bigger. But with the biopsy, they had cut half of it away. Okay. Um, and so it was, like, smaller. But then when it grew from after that biopsy, it came back with a vengeance. It was nasty. It was. And, and how were you feeling? Like, were, were you still remaining quite calm and optimistic or? Yeah, it was so ridiculous. Like, it's almost laughable now when I think about it because I remember calling my mum on the way in to get my results. And Again, by yourself? Yeah. Were you yeah. by myself? <laughs> um, and I'd called my partner, Sam, and I was just like, look, my results are in. I'm going to go get them. Um, he was like, do you want me to come? I was like, well, you're not going to be allowed in with me anyway. So it's okay. We just, we know it's tonsillitis. <laughs> um, and removing your tonsils is a daily procedure. So they're just going to remove my tonsils. Yeah. And um, I called my mom on the way in. I was chatting to her and she was very calm. And I was like, yeah, like, it's fine. Like, I don't smoke. I don't drink alcohol. I... You were on this holistic, clean yeah. lifestyle journey. So. Like I don't, I, I'm, I'm textbook healthy. <laughs> like, and um, my mum and my grandma had looked at the photos, and they, they knew that something wasn't right, but they never told me. And um, so I went in there and very, yeah, you know, optimistic, hopeful, like this didn't even cross my mind that this would happen and in my mind I'm like I don't smoke and it looked very much like what you see on a cigarette packet okay yep and so I was like oh like that's weird um but but I don't smoke so that can't be me exactly exactly that um and so then I waited in the waiting room for 45 minutes and it was the longest 45 minutes. And I was like, I only have 60 minute parking. Like they want to hurry up. (laughs) And so I raced outside, I moved my car and then I came back in and they called me in and they, I sat down and I can't remember the lady's name, but she was lovely and she was quite young. And she said, your biopsy results have come back with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. And I just felt like my world had fallen out from underneath me and I burst into tears and she goes, do you have anyone with you? And I was like, no, no, I don't have anyone with me. <laughs> like, oh, And had you ever heard of those words before besides cancer, which I'm sure most of the society has, but have you ever heard of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma before and blood cancer connected together. Had you ever heard of that? Um, I think I'd heard of like Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, I was a huge Delta Goodrum fan when I was a child. So you you knew? (laughs) So I'd heard of that um, like quite young and stuff like that, but I'd never put two and two together. I never really knew what it was or what it affected. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I didn't is because every other cancer is – has cancer in the name. Yeah. So you're like, you know, you've got breast cancer, ovarian cancer and like bowel cancer and 
it's all has cancer in the name mm-hmm. where lymphoma doesn't. No, it's that's very interesting. You say that we have a uh, have a number of conversations with people. They don't actually make that association that lymphoma is cancer and a blood cancer. So that that's why I did ask that question is because it is very common for people not to connect the dots. Yeah, when it's not so obvious, I yeah. guess. So. Yeah, I called my mum in that room because she was like, do you want to call someone? And I just, I couldn't break the news to my partner yet. Mm. Um, So I called my mum and I was on speaker with her and I just said, mum, it's not good. Um, I have, and I couldn't say it. It took me days and days to learn how to say non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was like, I have, um, um, no, no. And the nurse, like, kind of was like, she's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. And my mum just went straight to, okay, so what do we do? Yeah. Um, And then the nurse was like, I can't tell you the staging. I don't know. Basically from here you'll do another blood test, you'll do a PET scan, you'll get staged, and then you will start treatment. And your treatment will most likely involve chemotherapy and a type of oral medication. And at the time, there's a lot of information to receive in a space of 20 half an hour. Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my hair. I had long, long, beautiful blonde hair. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to lose my hair. And I've, I've never seen anyone go through treatment before. Um, unfortunately, um, I have lost my aunt to breast cancer, but I was overseas while she was going through treatment. So I never saw her go through it. And my grandma also had breast cancer, but she just had radiation and. So a very different journey. Yeah, very, very different. And so I'd never seen anyone go through it. And I just kind of went straight to fight or flight mode. Like, okay, what do we do? Um, I pulled myself together. I stopped crying and I was like, okay, blood test, this, that. I left that room and went straight. Can I ask yeah. you, sorry, um, was there, So, and I know you're 29 and I believe you haven't had children. In that conversation, was there ever a conversational mention of fertility? Not yet. Not um, yet. Not yet. There was the following week when I met with my specialist mm-hmm. Um so when I met with him the following week, so that was on the Thursday, on the Friday, I went to work, my partner came with me, we told my boss what I had and um, what the results were and he basically just said to me, take what time you need off, go do what you need to do and if there's anything you need, let us know. Um, did, that mean pay- did that mean you got continued paid? Because I'm sure that's what you need, but did they were they able to pay you? Um, so it was, it started off as a very nice journey and it didn't end in a very nice journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up taking leave without pay and then ended up resigning once Mm -hmm. I'd finished my treatment because I was not supported and I basically was backed into a corner without any option. Mm -hmm. It's such a sad, it's such a sad story that I have heard too many times. And I think employers, they jump in and say, let us know what we can do. We're happy to hear. We're here to support you. But actually not understanding what the journey or or what someone's treatment path is going to entail and what what true support one will need to get through treatment and then be able to return to work. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, that itself was an interesting one. Um, but we told him and he he was really nice at the time and then we went back to Auburwodonga so we drove three hours to be with my family and um, yeah we kind of just processed what was happening and um, yeah then on the Monday we came back Tuesday I done my PET scan um, and then Wednesday I met with my hematologist who was phenomenal. He was absolutely amazing and I feel very, very lucky to have got him as a hematologist. Were you referred to him by your GP or did just potluck of in the public system of who you got? Yeah, I think it was potluck um, because I did go, my biopsy came through the hospital. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, it was just kind of luck who I got and um, 
he specializes in this area. Um, he's a professor. He teaches about it. He's literally been a hematologist for 29 years, so mm. my entire life. So I felt like I was in really, really good hands. You felt trusted. Yeah. yeah that's great. And, um, yeah, he basically, he allowed my partner to come into that initial meeting and Sam wrote notes vigorously and I sat there and tried to absorb it and he said, okay, you're 29, what's your plan on fertility? And I said, well, actually, we really wanted to start trying for a family in the early new year. And um, he was like, well, that won't be happening. Um, he's like, but I'm going to put you on a medication called on an injection called Zoladex, which will suppress your ovaries, basically put them to sleep to protect them from the chemo. I'm really, really confident that you will be able to conceive naturally in the future, but we have time potentially to do an egg collection. So he jumped on the phone. He called, um, a specialist that he knew and was like, how soon can you see Renee? Like, this needs to happen quickly. And mm. the next day, on the Thursday, we were meeting with the fertility specialist. Wow. Um, and did you feel really supported in that? Because I know so many people, unfortunately, the haematologist or nurse, it's a conversation that's never happened, that never happens for them. Mm-hmm. And a window is missed. And I understand that there is timeframes and people's treatment, sorry, their diagnosis doesn't allow for that. But yeah. did that give you confidence? Okay, well, there's still that hope of that future that you know, you had in your head of being able to start a family. Yeah, there was. And because he was so confident in that you should still be able to conceive naturally, we're just doing this as an absolute backup was was definitely like put me at ease um, and that it happened so quickly. Like the next day we were in there, the Friday we were having the conversations with the counsellors and that, and that whole journey itself is intense. Like it's massive. And all of a sudden, like my life was normal. And within 10 days, I'm making these massive, massive life decisions that I don't have time to think about. I don't have time to think about how much this is going to cost me. I don't have time to think about, do I really want to do this? I don't have time. Time is not on my side. And we just have to make it work. Yeah. And how did you go, like, before you said you were on this such this holistic, clean health lifestyle journey to then be so embedded into this medical world and going, I'm going to have to inject hormones or inject, you know, chemotherapy or have chemotherapy injected into my body. Did that ever play against you and your thoughts and your mindset of where you were or you just were like fight or flight? I think just fight or flight. Um, mm-hmm. I I did obviously question why this is happening to me. I've done everything right. And when I asked that to the hematologist, he basically said, there is nothing that you could have done to prevent this. There is absolutely nothing. And this is not genetic. It was not passed on to you and you cannot pass it on. And I think when he told me that I couldn't pass it on, I definitely felt a lot better because I was like, oh my gosh, like my dream is to be a mum. And I was like, I can't, I can't live knowing that I could potentially pass this on. Like, how could I bring a child into the world? So when he reassured us that that wasn't the case and, yeah, it was just just bad luck. Yeah. Um, I imagine it would have allowed you to head into that fertility path and that egg collection with that confidence of going, I, I, as he said, I can't. you can't pass this on to your children. So it would have freed you of that guilt or yeah I don't want words in your mouth but what you know of the emotion you were feeling yeah yeah absolutely and so I think it made that process a lot easier um and I did successful in retrieving eggs we were we were very very successful um I actually had I think it's called like hyper stimulated (laughs) (laughs) um so I had a lot of eggs um and I am really cautious and really sensitive around this topic because I know that it's not like this for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so they collected 17 and 13 of them were viable. Wow. that is that uh, You say that is an exceptional number and an incredible number for you to achieve. Yeah. 
um, in your one cycle. Yeah, and that's it. Like I had one shot. I didn't have multiple rounds where I could try this again if it didn't work. Like we had one shot at this and um, I just, I was like, please, body, come on. Like you've let me down, but please come through for me. And and it did. And even my period coming on time because everything with an egg collection and fertility is so strategically done Mm -hmm. and everything has to happen at a certain time. So literally, yeah, and it just happened that my period was due on the on the Saturday, and I was like, "Come on, period! Like, please, please, please!" <laughs> and I remember it, and it was like twelve o'clock midday, yeah. and it came, and I ran out, and I was like, "Yes, I've never been so <laughs> excited for it to come!" And I was like, even under the crazy amount of stress that my body was under, it's still done that. that, and. I don't know if it sounds weird, but that was a moment there that I'm like, my body knows what to do. Mm-hmm. It was reassurance that it that it was doing exactly what it needed at the exact right time and responding yeah. the way that a body should, yeah, female's body should. Yeah, it knew what it needed to do. It done it as it was meant to do. And in that moment I was kind of like, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. be okay. I'm going to breeze through treatment. And... I'm just going to get through it. And well, it was a sign of hope, was it not? Yeah. And it was a sign of the future. Yeah. You know, that egg collection, you, you were, your life at that moment had been taken so out of control of your hands. And you were then given this opportunity to have your eggs collected and plan for a positive, happy future, even though at this minute everything looked so dark and you had no idea what was ahead of you. Yeah. And I, I'm a huge believer in like positive affirmations. So mm-hmm. I just continued to say to myself, like, life happens for me, not to me. This is happening for me and it's not happening to me. And mm. although I don't know the reasons why this is happening, maybe one day I will. And maybe one day I won't, but I have to believe in something and mm-hmm. I have to believe that it's happening for me. What a positive affirmation. What a golden nugget you've just given us, <laughs> I think. And yeah. So, yeah, I um, had that. I would say to myself every day, like, I'm guided and supported and I'm cancer-free. Mm-hmm. And I said I'm cancer-free every single day throughout my ent- entire thing. And I still continue to say it yeah. because I am now and I, yeah. I'm confident that I will remain that way. Um, but, yeah, it was crazy. And then... I started my treatment in December um, because of COVID and restrictions. It got postponed a little bit. So um, I started my first round of treatment on the 14th of December and I had six rounds of chemotherapy. Wow. Yeah. And then I remember we've had a conversation previously off off recording and you said that um, there was the potential that Sam wasn't going to be able to come with you into the into the treatment center and how and how devastating that would have been for you, especially for that first treatment. Yeah, the first one, um, so I spoke with my nurse um, the week before, and she was amazing. She basically went through everything that was going to happen and things like that, and she was like, look, you are going to lose your hair. And I just burst into tears. And I know it's only hair, but losing it. So much more. Is, it is. Yeah. And, but losing it is hard because it feels like when you lose your hair, people look at you differently and people can, like, I felt pretty okay. At, even up until this point, I still had no symptoms mm-hmm. except for this lump. So, and I was on steroids now, so that had gone down quite a bit. And so there's I, no hiding when you've lost your hair, especially as a female. Yeah. And so visually people knew that there was something wrong. Knew it's something different. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like people are going to know. And then on my first day of treatment, I went in there and Sam came up with me and he was sitting in the waiting room and I'm hysterical. Like I'm an absolute mess. Cause I am like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know how I'm going to respond to this. I don't know if it's going to make me really sick. Like I've. So many unknowns. Yeah. You know, you hear the horror stories of how bad chemo can be. 
And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, and I was just a mess. Anyway, the nurse walked out and she was like, oh, goodness me. Like, you're a mess. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so she said, let me see what I can do. I might be able to get him in today. Mm -hmm. Um, So they let Sam in. They closed us off. They closed all the curtains. So we were very isolated from everybody else. And um, he was allowed there for the first round and that was it. And the next five were by myself. Which, you know, talk about 2019, having patient go into a treatment or in a treatment, you know, a number of rounds of treatment without a support person. It would be such an unthought of thing. But then now, it, fast forward 2022, 20, 2020, that is the reality of so many people that have been diagnosed within that time period. And I think that the level of um, stress, anxiety, and I guess almost lack of support as well that that projected onto people is just, it's unfathomable. Yeah. It's, um, it's a lonely experience. I think cancer itself is lonely but then having to do it by yourself. Like you don't realise how strong you are until you're put in a position that you have no other choice but to be strong. But it was lonely. It was really lonely. I I describe it as a lonely blur, the whole, the whole experience. Mm. Um, again, here in Melbourne it's just Sam and I. So my like parents tried to travel as much as they could and try and be here and support me and, friends and that tried to support me from afar which very grateful for but it was hard it was lonely and we kind of just didn't really get told of what support was available to us nothing and it was just like yeah like do your treatment and what I found challenging is I'm in a I'm in an odd age bracket like I'm too old for canteen and I'm too young for any other support system I'm just there floating by myself trying to make it through, which is crazy because there's actually a lot more people in my age bracket Mm, that don't have support. And um, I found community through a Facebook group, um, which was women similar age to me, and that was really helpful, but you couldn't do anything in person. You couldn't see anyone. And I am a massive extrovert, so... Me, like, I gained my energy from being around other people and doing things like that. So me Mm -hmm. having to spend all this time alone and my partner continued to work, but when I stopped working, I was now home alone. I was terrified. Yeah, I was terrified to get sick because they'd already told me if you are to get COVID or if you were to get sick, like, it's going to be fatal. So to hear that, or I mean, you you know, for a patient to be diagnosed with a blood cancer way back in twenty, you know, pre-COVID, they already knew bugs were fatal. But then to have this pandemic, big super super bug that had never been exposed to the world floating around, and as you say, you're in Melbourne, mm-hmm. where it was almost the epicenter for Australia in many ways for COVID. Yeah, been terrifying. Yeah. So I was just like, I I have no choice but to stay at home. Um, And, yeah, it was was really lonely and it drained my energy because... You weren't recharging the way that you usually do. Yeah. And how was it for you and Sam? Because, I mean, you were experiencing what you were in the day clinic or in hospital, but then he wasn't being able to visualise it or really be involved and immersed in that world. How did that go for him understanding where you were at and what what treatment was really like? Was there any struggle there or um he he's a human angel. You see. Um he was literally the most amazing person throughout this entire thing and he has never experienced this before either. So we were just like two blind feet. <laughs> trying to make it through and, um, yeah, he just supported me the absolute best he could and um, sometimes he he didn't know the pain that I was in but he could see that I was in pain or or things like that and he tried to do everything he could. But 
a lot of the time there isn't much that help. help. What could you could you accept it? Could you accept yourself? Because sometimes patients they struggle. There's that balance and that dance that carers they want to offer, they do offer, and then the patient doesn't want to accept. Could you? Surrender and allow him. You, you seem very independent and very, you know, um, you in control of your life, pre, you know, pre all of this. So yeah. was accepting help hard? Um, yeah, it was. Um, it was more so hard asking help from him because I felt the guilt of, well, he didn't sign up for this. And I mm. I had to let go of that at some stage. Neither did you. And um it took a while and eventually I did kind of surrender and accept that. Um, How did you do that? I actually done a, like a Reiki session with a friend of mine and she put it into perspective for me and she said, stop being, you don't have to be strong every minute of every day. And I know that people keep telling you how strong you are and now you have this pressure on yourself that you don't, that you've got no other option but to be strong. But let people help you because if the roles were reversed, you would do anything that you could to help them and to help him. And if he didn't allow you to do that, then you would feel like you were being robbed of that. Mm. How powerful. What an enlightening moment. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you're so right. Like, I have this wall up and I'm not allowing people to love me and help me because I'm being stubborn. But if roles were reversed, absolutely, I would do anything for anyone. And so I need to stop taking that away from them because they can't take away the pain. They can't take the illness. They can't take all of these things that they say that they would be willing to take. So stop trying to take that away from them because it's the one thing that makes them feel like they're helping and and supporting. Yeah, and people want to help and people want to support for the most part. Some people ghost you. Um, do because they don't know how to do and how to deal with it. Yeah, and I think it just, I think with me being so open about it and sharing so much and sharing on my socials and sharing all of, like sharing the highs and the lows of it, I started to help educate people and education is power and there is no need to fear anything when you're educated. Absolutely. And did you think that with you being so open on social media and being so open with, as you said, the highs and the lows of your journey, do you think that um, the maybe the reason why that came to fruition is because you were so isolated from you, as you said, you're, you're um you, you love being out there and connecting with people and that's how you fill your bucket. Was that a way of compensating what you couldn't necessarily do in your usual yeah. your usual way of living? Yeah, I think um, I was already on my socials quite a bit beforehand anyway. Uh, so I think if I stopped showing up on my socials, it would have looked bizarre. Yeah. Um, but I also think the only way to break taboo topics is to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that at some point in your life, we're all going to be affected by cancer, whether it's you personally or whether it's somebody that you know. We're all going to be affected by it. It's so common and it's unfortunate how common it is. Mm-hmm. But I don't know why we're still tiptoeing around the topic mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I to me, I don't understand that because it is so common and there are so many ways that you can support someone and be there for them. And I think sometimes the, the, the taboo is sometimes as well is that the fear of what if, mm-hmm. what if it doesn't go the way that we hope and how, how do we deal with that, that fallout of it not going the positive direction, you know, I think sometimes, and it's a big fear and it, it, it um, Cancer makes people face their mortality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people fear death and Mm -hmm. people have lost people from cancer. But some people make it out the other side. They do, don't they? And some people go into remission and go on to be cancer-free and 
live a healthy life and this is just a blimp in mm-hmm. their life. Yeah. And I think we need to remember that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to give people hope. Mm-hmm. And by, you know, fearing like death or fearing that it's not going to work. And if you're the person supporting someone going through cancer and that's your mentality, that person doesn't need that. That person needs hope. That person needs positive energy around them. Mm-hmm. And I think like my family and Sam was so lucky because like death was never an option for me. It was like, okay, like let's go. What do we do? Yeah. Um, it was just not an option that it, it never even crossed my mind that that mm-hmm. was going to be a possibility because it just wasn't. Yeah, not in your world. And then so you said you had to have six rounds of treatment and throughout that, uh, I, as you said, death wasn't the option, so remission was your only option. So how was, did you have to have a stem cell transplant or anything like that or was it just your straight rounds of chemotherapy? Yeah, just straight rounds of chemotherapy. So um, I had chemotherapy on a 21-day cycle, so every three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... As I said, my cancer was really rare and it was a T-cell lymphoma, which typically T-cell, so you've got B-cells and T-cells. B-cells are typically very easily treated or not easily, but the treatment for them is much better. Typically, if you've got a T-cell lymphoma, it's a lot harder to treat. And Mm -hmm. I was, um, I don't want to say lucky because I, I don't like that word. I wasn't lucky because I still got this. I was fortunate enough that my T cells acted like a B cell so we could oh, treat right. so them. Responded. Yeah. And I had three different types of chemotherapy and one of them um, was a really smart type of chemo. It's called brentuximab and it's a targeted treatment. So it can tell exactly where the cancer cell is. It latches onto the cancer cell and that's it. It doesn't go through mm-hmm. and kill all your other cells unlike the other two types of chemo mm. that I had. So how are your side effects? Um, throughout the cycles, every round was different. Mm-hmm. Every single round was different. Um, round one, I was like, huh, that's a breeze. I can do that for six rounds, mm-hmm. naive. Um, round two, <laughs> round mm-hmm. two and three, I was so sick. Um, I've mm-hmm. never vomited as much as I did um, mm-hmm. during that. Then I started getting acupuncture. With the permission of your hematologist. Yes. Yeah. And acupuncture really helped my nausea. I didn't vomit since. Wow. Um, And round four, I was exhausted, just so exhausted mentally, emotionally. I hadn't slept for weeks. Wow. Was that because of the steroids that you were on? um, It was actually because of the bone marrow release. Mm, right and then you said like round four sounds like it was a very really tough mental you know mentally a really tough time what did you do to pull yourself through that because I know so many patients it's almost like the adrenaline begins to run off and you go okay I'm all we're here we're almost halfway and yeah the adrenaline begins to slide how did you how did you push I know you said before you don't know how tough you are until you have to continue you know you put to a situation how did you do it how did you get through it yeah, um, we done my mid-season scans and mm. they were great results and I was told that it had worked and I was in remission but I needed to do the following two rounds as like health insurance. Um, and so it, that definitely helped and I had things to look forward Yeah, and I had things to look forward to, you know, round four. I was like, okay, let's just get round four done. And then my best friend got married and I was a bridesmaid. So I had that to look forward to. And my brother was coming back from Canada after three years. And I was just so excited to see him. So I was like, okay, find things to look forward to, even if it's the small things. How important is that? Because you know what? It gives you hope for the future. It gives you something something positive to look forward to. And outside of that cancer world Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And I didn't really get to think about that. It was like, okay, great. Like now I'm in remission. I've got my best friend's wedding. My big brother's coming home. And I was just so excited. And round five, um, 
I done round five and it just kicked me. Like I was so exhausted. I was so tired. And um, I truly felt at this point, like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it is so far away still. And I think I felt like I was running a marathon and at this point I was crawling across that finish line and it didn't matter how I was going to get across the finish line, I was going to get there, but I was crawling at this point. Um, And was that hard for you too because you were so active in your life pre-diagnosis and I envisioned that you were very strong and and you fit and then to be able to be knocked and be so exhausted and life be the complete opposite. That too mentally would have been a big a big flip for you. Yeah. I worked out um, probably up until round four. Um, okay. I still continued to train. I just changed my exercise. To me, exercise. At home? Yeah. So I done mm-hmm. it at home. Um, I rented a reformer Pilates machine because it's a bit more gentle. Um, or my mum rented it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Thanks, mum. <laughs> legend. <laughs> Um, but I just tried to change it because for me, exercise is more about the mental game than it is about the physical game. Like I, I needed that and I just needed to, and even now being on the other side of it, if I get to train and I get to work out, that's the accomplishment for the day. Like I've achieved something and that should be celebrated. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not talking about the, the intensity that you potentially were doing beforehand, but it's that that movement and and feeling and fueling those endorphins too because let's not discredit what um exercise does to as you say your mental health Mm -hmm. like that is so powerful yeah and um yeah I think for me like I I felt pretty good up until that point round five was um I really struggled with the bone marrow release so that bone marrow release releases white blood cells to keep you healthy And it is painful and no one really talks about that. And it's a hard thing to describe because it's kind of, it's like a pulsing pain through your body. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's just like nothing I've ever felt before. And normally it would last like three days. Round five, my body was just so exhausted at this point. That pain lasted for 11 days. Oh, wow, Renee. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and pain, and I think pink people should never discredit pain is is exhausting physically and mentally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was almost worse, to be honest. The pain was so intense. And, and no relief? Was there any relief they could offer you? Um, yeah, so I basically had to take really high pain medication um, to help it, which was a like a struggle for me it was hard because you know I before all of this before I was diagnosed I wouldn't even take Panadol for a headache mm-hmm. like I would just be like I'm dehydrated and I need to drink some more water yeah your values yeah where your core your core beliefs were very different and then I was like I had no option but to take this pain medication I was like yeah. my body is being pumped with all yeah. of this medication that like prior a day would never even touch yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, and I um, I am very just conscious of time, but I thought that, you know, I would bring you forward and, and as to I know that you, you expressed in the beginning and throughout this conversation how you were, you were really in limbo as to not being able to access support and, and almost being left in that hospital system floating. Mm-hmm. Was there a point that anyone said to you, hey, like, how are you going? It killed, you know, can we connect you with this or could we um, connect you to this service? Did that ever happen? My last day of treatment. Wow. Yeah. So my last day of treatment, um, my nurse said to me, hey, we've actually had um, lymphoma come in or Leukemia Foundation, I can't remember what one it was, come into the hospital and um, they're going to reach out to you. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's a little too late. <laughs> but better late, better late than never. Um, but, yeah, it was right at the end and mm-hmm. that's kind of when I heard from you guys and um, 
yeah, I think that people should know about the support that's available to them. Um, Regardless of their age, their location or their diagnosis, right? Absolutely. And just because I'm in this age group doesn't mean that I I don't need support. In fact, I probably need it a lot more because I am in an age group that is I consider to be bulletproof. Mm -hmm. And so people just forget about you. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, meh, you'll be fine. You don't need help. Financially, you're okay. Mentally, like you're strong enough and resilient enough because you're young, you'll bounce back. And it's like, well, it's, yeah, it's not that easy. That's actually not the reality of what you experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So do you think having those services introduced um, or even for people that potentially may be resistant to, you know, being accepting to those services or accepting to the help, do you feel that that would have changed and helped your journey? Yeah, I do. I do think it would have helped. Um, I think once you get out of your own way and put your ego aside and realise that, like, help's available and it's not weak to accept help, then, yeah, it definitely is a game changer. And even if it's just resources, like by chatting to you guys, you know, I was given like resources that I could read and, you know, I didn't even know about this podcast. And like listening to other people's stories makes you feel less alone. And I think that's what you have to remember too is, even with a rare diagnosis, there's always someone that has walked the path before you Mm. and you might not have the exact same outcome or the exact same treatment plan and all of that, but there will be similarities and Mm. they have passed the way and unfortunately you will like pave it for somebody else as well. Very, very true, so true. And you're right, I think the, the importance of connection and connecting not only with your, your your close network and your your supportive network, but allowing other people, you know, allowing those other resources to come in and support you and into your network is can can almost be life changing as well. Because I feel, and many people I have spoken with, they go, oh, "I don't want to burden. I don't want to burden my partner or my family with." you know, the fears or thoughts or, um, you know, having that conversation again and again and again. But by connecting with other supports such as the Leukemia Foundation or your social worker or a psychologist uh, or, or even whoever, honestly, it, it, allows you to, it, it allows you to be free and open and, and have even more support and scaffolding throughout this, throughout this journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's so important to lean on the people that will let you lean on them. Like, yeah, absolutely, just allow yourself to to do that and to accept that, and and know that this is not forever. Like, you, mm-hmm. you're not going to be reliant on people forever. Mm, absolutely, it's, and because because would you say too that once almost treatment finishes, you have that beautiful support ne- network within the hospital where you see you see your nurses regularly, you see either your OT or your dietitian and your hematologist very regularly. Then all of a sudden, you get that news: treatment treatment's finished. Things have you know go 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 back to living life as to where it was, and just come in you know every month or every two months, three months, whatnot it may be. And again, that's almost like a lifeline cut off. Would, would that be right in saying Yeah, that? exactly. Like I said to my nurses, so what happens like next week when I finish treatment? They're like, oh, you just go back to life. And I was like, excuse me? What does life look like? <laughs> um, I can't just go back to life. Like one, I mentally and physically am a very different person to what I was mm. six months ago. Life is different. But also like you can't just go back to life. Like your values change physically like no one talks about the aftermath of rebuilding Mm -hmm. and the best way to describe it is I feel like I've gone through a natural disaster Mm -hmm. and something's completely wiped me out and now I have the frame of a house and I have to rebuild it again and how do you do that (laughs) 
yeah like what do I what do I enjoy doing these days I don't know like I am now on this real big self-discovery journey because I don't know what I like I don't know the kind of person that I am anymore I don't know what I enjoy yeah I don't know what I want to do with my life um I know I'm different but I don't know who I am yet and I think by you expressing that, it is so powerful to others to hear because people think that they should have all the answers or that they should be able just to slot back easily into, you know, pre-diagnosis life. But it's really, it's really not, unfortunately, that simple. And I think I've, I've spoken to a number of people and, and I've recorded on the pod and people may, if they've heard them, they will hear me say, it's, this is a, now this is self-directed chemotherapy and the treatment and diet is is very directed it's x y take this then and it's it's very prescribed whereas now you what you craved for is being that master of your own destiny again it it is now that yeah and you're out of fight or flight now like the emotions of what has happened hit you and you have to deal mentally with that you can't suppress it because if you suppress it it's going to come out eventually um, but it's like dealing with that and it's, um, yeah, not accepting what has happened but accepting that that doesn't have to be your entire life. And mm. just because you've gone through an illness or and you've done treatment and you've had a diagnosis and things like that, you don't have to be defined by that and that's not the only thing that makes you human. Yeah. And I, and I think that you're so right. It is it is really important to face it and acknowledge what has happened and to mentally process it because you as you said you're in fight or flight mode you don't you don't have time almost to have to to stop and think about what's going on and it's not until treatment's begun that you can begin to take that breath and I think that whilst whilst it can be really hard to go okay I actually now need to deal with the mental load of what's happened it's I, I can understand how people can go but I just did all that work. I just survived all that. I just want to go back to living. I just want to put it in a box and not and not think about it. But it is, it, yeah, it's really important to acknowledge it. And I totally get that you've just fought fought a battle and um, now you have to do more work. Yeah. Battle's not over. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is there any... Any, you've said some beautiful golden nuggets and some words of wisdom throughout throughout our conversation. Is there anything else you would like to highlight, or that you could leave um, a message for people that you know are either at the start of the journey or or at the end of a or end of a treatment cycle? Yeah, I think just be gentle with yourself. Um, you have to be gentle and. Although it's hard, surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, and just know that there's hope, but you're not alone. So whether you find Facebook groups or whether you find community within your hospital or, you know, find community somewhere else, social media is phenomenal these days. Um, there's so many Facebook groups out there, some you will resonate more with and some you won't and that's okay you don't have to resonate with everything Mm -hmm. and everyone but there are people out there who you know you can talk to and relate to and sometimes it's nice to talk to someone family and friends are great because they want to support you and they're there but sometimes it's great to speak to somebody who is going through treatment at the same time as you or has been through it so because Mm -hmm. they're going to understand it on a different level and um, yeah, just surrender and be kind to yourself, and um, this too shall pass. That is beautiful and perfect. I couldn't sum it up more. And I think it's really yeah, you've nailed it on the head by connecting and and um, su- reaching out to a support network, whether it be a healthcare you know healthcare professional or organisation, or as you said, the power of social media is um, is really really powerful and so important to connect and break down those barriers of feeling isolated yeah mm. well Renee I cannot thank you enough for being so open and um, honest with us here today and sharing your story I and the foundation acknowledge that that is that isn't easy to do um, and can be you know 
yeah, that it's not an easy task to do, but we thank you so much for helping improve the lives of others living with blood cancer. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.